Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. John, as you know, today we'll be discussing cross-examination with a highly accomplished trial lawyer, Patrick Malone. Pat, welcome to our podcast. Welcome, Pat. Hey, glad to be here. It seems to me that many of the interesting people I've met over the years have had more than one career, and, uh, and that's certainly true of you. Before you established yourself as a trial lawyer and author, you were an investigative reporter for the Miami Herald. I did a little investigation. I see you were actually finalist for a 1980 Pulitzer Prize. Can you tell me a bit about what inspired you to become an investigative reporter? I went into the newspaper business right after I got out of college, and I had done journalism in both high school and college. You know, really loved it, loved the writing. It was fun to get your byline on the front page and that kind of thing. You know, it's just a natural step to do more and more detailed, more and more in-depth stuff. And the fancy term for that is investigative reporting. And so that's how I kind of gravitated over towards doing that. I mostly did medical writing and medical kind of investigative writing. This piece that we were up for the Pulitzer on, I was just on a team with several other uh, top guys, much better reporters and more accomplished than I was. I was kind of the junior kid on the block at the time. In fact, one of them went on to become a famous writer in his own thing, and, and that's Carl Hyacin. I don't know if you know that name. Carl's written a bunch of novels about Florida. I left Miami in 1981 and moved to New Haven, Connecticut, went to law school there, and then moved down to our nation's capital in 1984, clerked for a federal judge for a year, and then went into civil law practice. Looking back at it, do you consider that there were skills that you developed as a reporter that helped you as an attorney? 100%. Reporters try to get to the bottom of facts by asking a lot of impertinent questions. Same thing that cross-examiners do. And you try to, as a reporter, package it into an accessible way for lay people to understand it. And you try to write your sentences and your paragraphs very direct and straightforward, plain English. I found as a young legal writer that I just had skills that people who had went straight to law school out of college uh, just didn't have. I think law school kind of kind of ruins people's writing skills in some respects. So that was a big advantage for me. Being able to write and also write fast and write under the gun when you've got a deadline, you just got to spit it out and get it on the paper. So that was all good. Can you tell us a bit about the types of cases you've been handling since you became a lawyer? Well, I do all plaintiff's work, mostly medical, suing hospitals, doctors, outpatient clinics, sometimes the federal government when it employs doctors. And, you know, there's a very extensive network of military hospitals and VA hospitals that come within our sites from time to time. And I have also done some product liability work, a drug product liability in particular, other general plaintiff stuff. I like the David and Goliath thing. I like representing the underdog and speaking truth to power. That's what we try to do. I see you belong to, based on your website, 
many prestigious organizations, including the Inner Circle of Advocates, a distinction you share with John Simon here. Yeah, that's how I met John, was at an Inner Circle meeting. It's quite a group. Lawyers in that group are way above my level of accomplishment. Terrific people too, Pat. Yeah. Just wonderful, wonderful people. Part of the uh, criteria for getting into that group is you have to have a little bit of humility and self-effacement and not think that you're the be-all and end-all. So so that's a good thing. (laughs) I'd love to talk just a little bit about some of your publications. In 2006, you co-authored Rules of the Road, a plaintiff's lawyer's guide to proving liability that was co-authored with Rick Friedman. Since then, these techniques have been the subject of national and regional seminars for trial lawyers. Now in its second edition, that's got to bring you a lot of satisfaction to see your ideas taking root in so many places and helping so many lawyers. Yeah, it was uh, great and still is great. And, you know, Rick Friedman was the primary inventor of the whole idea, and I kind of tagged along and helped him develop the book. And then I've done a couple more books using similar themes, including the book that I was going to tell you a little bit about today, which is called The Fearless Cross-Examiner. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's actually a pretty good book. In fact, I would say it's my best work to date. And in that book, I take rules of the road concepts and apply them to cross-examination. It seems like winning a case for a client is not enough for you. You seem to be driven to prevent future personal injury catastrophes. For instance, I see an article called Paying It Forward, that the plaintiff attorney should demand broader non-monetary results. And also you wrote a book called The Life You Saved, Nine Steps to Finding the Best Medical Care and Avoiding the Worst. You don't want just to be there to clean up the mess. You want to see something happen Totally true. I advocate for my fellow members of the plaintiff's bar that when you're in a case, I mean, for no other reason than that it makes the case much more satisfying for you and for your clients, particularly in a wrongful death situation. People often feel terrible guilt about bringing a legal case, and they often tell us when we first meet them, they say, I just don't want to see this happen to someone else. Well, sometimes during the course of a one or two or three-year lawsuit, you lose sight of that goal. And I am a strong advocate for bringing it back, especially at the settlement table. When you're finally getting around to talk about settlement, you tell the other side, look, there are things that you guys need to do to clean up your act and make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And that includes things like education programs, all sorts of just simple rule changes within an organization that would help prevent your kind of tragedy from happening again. Something that's very meaningful for clients, that they're not just taking money and going home, but making a difference in other people's lives. So now we uh, reach the point where we'll talk about the fearless cross-examiner, subtitle, Win the Witness, Win the Case. We had many books on cross-examination already. I'm wondering what inspired you to write this book. Actually, I had read these other books and I thought, you know, I got something to say here that other people have not said. And so that got me started. I collected transcripts from a lot of other very fine lawyers, including many from the Inner Circle of Advocates. And I kind of studied what other people did that worked for them. And I looked at some of my own transcripts to see what worked for me. And I kind of applied some of these rules of the road ideas to cross-examination. And it took a long time to write this book, but uh, finally 
you know, came out pretty well. I noticed the word fearless in the title. I know that must be well considered. Why is it there and how does a young trial lawyer get from fearful to fearless? Excellent question. We are taught in law school, trial advocacy, and things like that, that cross-examination is a scary and fearsome process. Standing up in court and having a conversation with a witness who does not want to help you in any way, shape, or form, that's intimidating. And actually, it should be intimidating. Fearless cross-examiner is not cocky cross-examiner. He or she is not an arrogant cross-examiner. When I say fearless, I have a very specific meaning in mind. I have in mind taking ourselves in our true authentic selves, stripping off the armor of arrogance and nastiness that sometimes we put on just to protect ourselves, and really studying our cases and studying the witness and just figuring out the best lines of attack and the best ways of broadcasting those to the jury so that we and the jury and the witness and the judge are all literally on the same page. So that's what I mean by becoming a fearless cross-examiner. The style of cross-examination that was taught when I was a baby lawyer, the, the most prominent advocate and teacher of cross-examination techniques was a professor named Irving Younger. Professor Younger promulgated a style of cross-examination, and he was all about technique and not substance, whereas I'm more about substance. But his style of cross-examination which he called the Ten Commandments of cross-examination. It was all about being fearful. As one of them said, never ask one question too many. So if you take that seriously, that particular commandment, that means you've always got this little voice in your head telling you, be quiet, sit down, shut up, you're about to screw it up. And, and that's bad. He has a lot of other commandments, like always ask leading questions or only ask leading questions. And I think that, you know, leading questions are good, but they're not anything close to 100%. And if you free yourself from that particular commandment and learn that there are situations when your cross-examination actually becomes much better when you don't ask leading questions and you ask open-ended questions, when you know the witness doesn't have a very good answer, that can lead to very powerful, very memorable cross-examination. When I was in law school, we were taught, you need to keep that witness in a cage, basically. You need to keep it safely confined in a little cage. And you don't want to stop using those leading questions because you let the tiger out of the cage. What's your response to that? Well, it all depends. And <laughs> I believe that Leading questions are good to kind of efficiently and quickly put the witness into a corner. But then once the witness is in the corner and you know that there's not much way they can get out of the corner, then you just open the door and ask them non-leading question. A good true life example of that 
F. Lee Bailey in the O.J. Simpson murder trial, where he was representing Simpson, had on the witness stand a police crime scene investigator at the scene where Simpson's ex-wife and this young waiter fellow were brutally stabbed to death. And Effley Bailey's point, he was trying to raise questions about the accuracy and competence of the crime scene investigation by the Los Angeles cops. He was asking about why there were no footprints leaving the scene of the crime, no bloody footprints leaving the scene of the crime. I can't reproduce it exactly, but his words were to the effect of, can you imagine, officer, that this killer committed such a brutal act and then left the scene without leaving any bloody footprints? Can you imagine that? And the guy said, well, anything can happen. And Bailey said, no, my question was, can you imagine this? And the guy said, like I said, anything can happen. And so the next question from F. Lee Bailey was, okay, explain to the jury how this could happen, that the killer could commit all these horrible acts of bloodshed and not leave footprints when he was leaving the scene. Explain that to the jury. And of course, the witness had no explanation because there is not a good explanation for that. And there are many, many more examples like that, where once you get the witness in the corner, you invite them to explain what cannot be explained is much more effective than just browbeating them with things like, You can't even explain that, can you, sir? Uh, That sort of thing. So that's just one example of of why I think that using only leading questions is not good. Let's have a simpler, more homespun example that many of your listeners will know. And that is, let's say you've got a, a left turn collision case where you've got on the witness stand a defendant who turned left in front of your client's car and caused a pretty bad collision with big injuries. So you could say to the witness, didn't you know that there's a rule for left turns that you're only allowed to turn left when it's safe to do so? Didn't you know that, sir? Which is kind of the leading, browbeating sort of way of asking the question. Or you could have a much more quiet question, which is, Sir, what were you taught in driver's education about when it was okay to turn left in front of approaching traffic? Now, what is the universe of potential answers to that? Well, one answer is, I didn't go to driver's head. <laughs> so that's a, that's a fine answer. <laughs> that's a fine answer. We can deal with that one. Another answer is, well, I I know you're not supposed to turn left unless it's safe to do so, but your guy was speeding too fast. And, you know, where they try to argue with you. And then you say, well, wait a second. Now, what did you say before you accused my guy of going too fast? Didn't you say something else just then and have him repeat the admission again? I agree. I was taught that you should only turn left when it's safe to do so. 
And so listening to the witness incriminate themselves out of their own mouth with their words, I think, can be quite powerful in any case. You provided us with a checklist. A lot of what you do in the courtroom is not just inspiration. It requires a lot of preparation. Could you share with us some thoughts about how to do a good preparation in order to look inspired in the courtroom? I'm so glad you asked that because what looks spontaneous in the courtroom, and you want it to look spontaneous because it's a little more exciting for your witnesses in the jury box, but what looks that way really requires tons and tons of prep. Let's say you're dealing with a true professional witness, somebody who's testified dozens and dozens of times. In my case, it happened to be, he styled himself as an independent medical examiner who had been involved in hundreds of cases. The intimidating thing to recognize about these guys is that they may have actually had more time in the courtroom than you have had because, you know, we might go to court once or twice a year. In a good year for an actual trial, they may be in trial every few weeks, these fellows. So how do you take them down? Well, I think it starts with just good old-fashioned investigative work about the witness. The little checklist I shared with you, and this does sound intimidating because I've got a long list of things that people need to think about looking up. But if you get some help, either from outside investigators, law clerks, college students, you know, it doesn't take a PhD in, in an investigation to do some of this stuff. We live in an era where people's lives are online and pretty easily accessible. And so you can find great stuff. So my first rule is you've got to start this at least, I'd say, 30 days before trial, if not even sooner than that. Now, sometimes we get surprised and we think we're going to be settling a case. Well, there are situations like that. But for the most part, you kind of know what cases are going to go to trial. And it's not a waste, even if you do some work that you then never use because you settle the case. Well, knowing that you have in your saddlebags some really effective cross-examination stuff that your opposing lawyer doesn't know about, you don't have to tell them what you've got, but it will help you in your self-confidence level to hang tough and get a bigger number for your client. So the kinds of things I suggest you think about looking up would include, and this is for, let's say, a medical witness, the first thing you want to do is an independent check to make sure that they really are certified by various boards that they claim to be certified by. This is all on my website. I've got this all laid out. But there are official boards where you have to actually take a test. You have to submit, if it's, a, say, a surgery board, you've got to submit cases that you, the surgeon, have done. A pretty rigorous process. And then you have to repeat it every 10 years or re-enlist. And some people don't do that, and they have dropped out of board certification, but they forgot to tell you that. They forgot to update their CV. So that's just item one. Then we've got military service. You know, if they don't mention military service in their CV or on their website, you know, no big deal. No reason you got to browbeat it. 
But sometimes you find it, and you can absolutely devastate people with this. A friend of mine actually had it happen against him in a bad way, where he had a witness he was sponsoring on the witness stand, and the other side discovered that this guy had claimed service in Vietnam and Purple Hearts and Bronze Stars and stuff like that, and he did not have it. This is so common that there actually was an article on this subject in the New Yorker magazine not too long ago about all the shaming of people who claim distinguished military service that they do not have. Other kinds of things you need to look up, licensing and disciplinary bodies for that person. I happened to, and the only reason I checked this was I just had this odd feeling about this one witness. I wondered why he was a surgeon who only operated in a clinic and did not have privileges at the nearby hospitals. And I wrote to the state licensing board and boom, two weeks later, I get back this package of materials that say he was decertified to get privileges at his hospital because he had been swiping drugs from the operating room to feed a drug habit. Wow. So, you know, just some big stuff out there. Yeah. Is it going to happen in every case? No. Some of these witnesses are going to turn out to be very clean, but there are all kinds of things you can find. For example, you check the state incorporation board where all the corporations, both private and public within that state, are listed. Well, see if your guy has incorporated any side businesses. You might find some really interesting stuff there. There's educational institutions, databases that they have, and you can get accreditation to see maybe this witness went to a non-accredited school. Of course, you want to look for the witness's own website, their blogs, their Twitter feeds, stuff like that. You want to see if there's been Daubert motions against them divorce proceedings, bankruptcy. Many of these are going to be dry holes, but any one of them, if you can come up with something good, it is absolute dynamite. And notice that I haven't even talked yet about depositions because depositions are kind of the usual way of approaching it. And and that's good, especially using, a, there's an outfit on the plaintiff's side called Trial Smith, very good outfit in Texas that collects depositions of expert witnesses. And you always should check those. But the other side is going to know you're checking those and they will be more prepared for that than they will for some of this other stuff. So that's just kind of one way I would start the investigation process. So once you're well prepared with that kind of information, it becomes apparent that you're ready to open things up in cross-examination. I'm curious, how many of his Ten Commandments are left standing intact after you are prepared in that way to open things up? Yeah, I would say that one of his Ten Commandments is to use short questions with plain words I like that. That definitely survives. (laughs) And then another one is to listen to the witness's answers. That also, I agree, is totally important. Too many of us, we're kind of nervous when we're standing up there, and we don't want to have any dead space in the room, any moments of quiet. And so we sit there and we're studying our outline for what our next question should be, and we're only kind of half listening to the witness. That's bad. One thing I advocate to people when I've really 
kind of gotten into the zone of questioning myself is I call it the no hands approach, which is to make sure there is nothing in your hands, no outlines, no notes, no documents, nothing at all. And you have your eyes on the witness, your ears open. So it's the eyes, ears, and no hands approach. And this is the way when you totally engage with the witness, you're listening to them, you're not afraid of their answers because you know that you're asking questions. They may or may not be leading questions. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But they are questions that you know, you know enough about the witness, you know enough about the case that you can deal with his answers. And therefore, listening to the witness's answers is very important. A third of his commandments that I agree with as important is to not quarrel with the witness. Because it's very important that the jury perceive that you're not getting grouchy with the witness. It's almost like they're watching a tennis match. The person who stomps around on the tennis court and throws down their racket in disgust, well, you can tell without even having watched much of the tennis match, that must be the guy who lost. Similarly, in the courtroom, if you get irritated, sarcastic, that kind of thing with the witness, you are the loser automatically. He who loses his temper in court has just lost the cross-examination. So do not quarrel with the witness. Now that leaves us with three of his 10 commandments, short questions, plain words, listen to the witness's answers, and don't quarrel with the witness. The other seven, I think, are mostly wrong and sometimes even really bad. 300 is a pretty good batting average in baseball. Is there a way to characterize what's wrong with the others as a group, or should we just mention them one by one? Well, yeah, they're just too fearful. Don't ask question unless you know the answer to the question. That's very bad because there are, for one thing, it promulgates this obsessive style of deposition taking where you take these seven-hour depositions, and when you do that, you're guaranteed to have such a long transcript that the little nugget that you thought you got on page 137 is totally explained in a different way by the witness on page 239. And so <laughs> if you take a deposition, you want it to be as tight as possible. But my point is, there are plenty of times when you may not know the answer to this specific question, but it's still a good question to ask because when you think about your case and you know enough about your case, you know that there really is no good answer to this question. And therefore, it's one that should be asked. Now, John, you had one like this when we were talking the other day. It was in a product liability case. Oh, the testing. Testing, of course. Yeah, right. Like you, I do some product liability stuff. And one of the things that we see now and then is for a particular model or type of vehicle or whatever the product is, they will have done absolutely no testing 
perfectly the way you've set it up. You know, you set it up with the witness, with the rules, how important testing is. You emphasize what other testing other companies, you know, in the industry do, why it's important, and you build that all up. And then, you know, you get to the point where you did no testing. And I, I like asking them to start out. I don't, you know, I agree with you on the yes, no question, leading questions only. I love asking first, did anybody consider it? You know, did anybody even consider the testing? And then I ask them, why didn't you even consider it? Because there's really no reason ever to not consider something. And, you know, they'll say, no, you know, we didn't consider it. Maybe they had a good reason for not testing. But once you get them even, you know, it's a perfect example, Pat, of what you said, using the leading questions to box them into that corner. You know, if you can box them in a corner to where they've admitted they didn't even consider doing the testing. And they want to say that, by the way, because you know, they're very defensive about not having done any testing. Right. And it's one of those questions that either way, if they considered it and didn't do it, that's okay with me. And, you know, if they never considered it at all, that's even better. So what you're saying, I just, I'm sitting over here smiling, listening to it because everything that comes out of your mouth, I can think of two or three examples of a witness who I either tried to do it or did it or wish I had done it. Yeah. So wonderful stuff. It really is. Yeah, you can ask them factual questions. You can say, um, okay, so when you put this vehicle on the market and it was different from the prior models, tell me all the tests that were done before it was put on the market. <laughs> yeah, that's... So that's a non-leading way of asking the question. Or they can say, well, we didn't do any testing. <laughs> Pat, one question I have back to this, the stuff that you can find with the pre trial investigation. And there's so much stuff out there on the internet. If it exists, you can find it. And one of the things I always struggle with is when you have some really good stuff or bad, depending on what side of the fence you're on, under what circumstances do you lay that out or, you know, play your hand, show your cards before trial in a deposition, for instance. I kind of tend to hold on to it because you just never know when the case is going to go. You have a good idea, I think, of whether the case is going to go to trial or not. But so what are your thoughts on that? I would never disclose it to my adversary. I mean, I might hint around a little bit if I thought we were going to be edging towards settling the case, but I wouldn't even do it witness specific. I might say something like, you know, there are things about your case that you may not know, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, but there's some interesting stuff out there. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that kind of keeps them up at night anyway, and that's a good thing. <laughs> I had a case about two years ago. It was a trial of a product liability case in mid-Missouri, in a rural area in Missouri, and it was an out-of-town firm who was defending the case, and they did an animation, and one of our experts really tore into it in detail, and we made some good headway of really undermining the foundation to show that they'd actually manipulated some things, and in opening, all we did with the jury was to say, you're going to see this animation, and we would just ask that you pay really close attention to that animation. We just suggested, planted yeah. the seed that there was something, you know, we're going to show you something about that animation that you'll be very interested in. And lo and behold, there was no animation. <laughs> they didn't use the animation in the case. We're segueing off to opening statements, but I love to do that kind of thing where I kind of enlist the jurors as investigators. I might say something like, 
I know what the doctor is going to say on his own behalf in this case because I had a chance to take his testimony before trial. It's called a deposition. There are other things, though, that he has said about the case that he wrote in his medical records. And I'm going to suggest to you that we pay close attention to comparing what he said in his medical records before there was any lawsuit that he needed to defend compared to what he says in his defense in his testimony. And I think you will find it very interesting. And so you just kind of hint very broadly at it. And that, of course, drives the other side totally crazy because now in their opening, they've got to either try to take the wind out of your sails by giving their explanation, but then that sounds very defensive, or how do they handle it? It's just not good for them. And you're piquing the interest of the jurors. You're getting them on board and you're getting them engaged in it. I mean, I think yeah. it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. I had a question for you. The One of the things that comes up most often with me is experts who have got the qualifications, they're professional testifiers, but they're basing their opinions on the facts of the case. And there are two different versions. And what they'll do is they'll go in and just cherry pick a certain explanation of the facts, a certain version of the facts, and completely ignore other facts in the case. How do you handle that? So the rule of the road that I promulgate for those witnesses is cherry picking is not allowed. You know, sir, and your own expert specialty society says that you are required to be objective, impartial, consider all the evidence. One thing you'll find on our website, if you Google patrickmalonelaw.com, expert witness specialty societies, we have collected ethical statements from 37 mostly medical specialty societies so far, and I think we may even have a few more by now, where they talk about how they expect members of their society to ethically testify in court. We started this with a group that probably testifies more than any other medical group, and that's the orthopedic surgeons. So there's this AAOS, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and they say right there in their expert witness ethical statement, that you're required to consider all the evidence. So we jam that down them and make them agree with that. And then we show that they, in fact, have cherry-picked. Now, the other technical tool that I think every lawyer needs to know, and John, you know this, but some of especially younger folks don't appreciate this as much, and that is there is a rule that says that anything the expert witness has relied on is fair game for the cross-examiner. Now, the way you set this up is early in your cross, you say to the witness, now here's this big stack of medical records, sir. You read all these, I take it, in formulating your opinion? Oh, yes. Yes, I read them all. And I take it you relied on all of them in formulating your opinion? Oh, yes, yes. He's not going to say at that point, well, I used this one, but didn't use that one. So once the witness has agreed that he relied on a body of evidence, even if those medical records might be technically hearsay and, and would not come into evidence because they would have 
opinions or other things in them, you have opened Pandora's box and you can start pulling items out of Pandora's box and just saying, well, here's something. Did you see this in the records? This is different from your opinion, isn't it? Something that says that your guy had a bad limp on a certain day, for example, where it's, he claims that your fellow had totally recovered from the injury by X date. You can do that with depositions too. He'll say he read and relied on your client's deposition. Well, then you get to start quoting the deposition to him, even though you could not do this in your case in chief. You could not start reading your client's deposition into evidence. But when you're cross-examining someone who has said, I rely on everything I've read, including the deposition testimony of your client, well, you get to then show them what your client said in deposition, which of course is totally consistent with what they're testifying to at trial. And then you just show that they are a cherry picker and someone who has looked at things in a very selective way. Pat, there's a lot more about cross-examination that John and I would like to discuss with you, but we're going to take a pause at this point, and then we'll continue our discussion on our next episode. I'm Eric Beef. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.